You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning, everybody. Gotta love Beatles. It's a good start. Hey, uh, so glad that you're joining us this morning. If I, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake and to be one of the pastors here at Midtown Church. Love that you're with us. Hope you feel welcomed and helped in your walk with Christ or your exploration of who he is this morning. Um, you picked a great Sunday. We all picked a great Sunday to be here because uh, we're kicking off our fall sermon series today. So you're getting in, in at the like, beginning of the movie. So that's really good. We're all starting something new together. And our uh, fall sermon series is going to be from the book of James. And uh, just really excited about this. I love the book of James for many reasons, one of them being who wrote it. See, because James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Did you know that? The book of James written by the half-brother of Jesus. Pretty cool. Like, I think this is something that we take for granted. Like, we actually have access to, like, if you have a Bible or you have access to the internet, you have access to something that was written over 2000, about 2,000 years ago by the brother of Jesus. Like, how, how cool is that? Like, I don't know what you're reading right now, but it's not as cool as, as that. You could read a book that was written by the brother of Jesus. Pretty, pretty awesome. And so we're going to read that this, uh, this fall. We're going we're gonna to study it this fall. And I'm really excited about that. And so um, now I'm not just excited about it because of who wrote it. I'm also excited because of the contents that he wrote. Like uh, James is just full, just packed full of God's wisdom for how to live life and how to like follow Christ in our everyday lives. And so it's, uh, in fact, many Bible scholars compare the book of James to the Old Testament book of, of Proverbs. And basically it's like the New Testament equivalent of uh, the book of Proverbs because it's just like wisdom after wisdom and wisdom statement after wisdom statement. And uh, all of it just very, very practical, very helpful for us. And so again, really excited about this. So we're just going to dive right in. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and open up. Or if you have your phone, you can pull up uh, James. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to be in the first eight verses this morning. I'll also have the words up here. They'll follow along that way if that's uh, your preferred method of following along. But um, let's just dive right in with verse 1. Uh, James begins his letter by introducing himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now... Let me hit pause there and just, again, draw attention to the fact that, uh, this, that this was written by the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, and yet, look, how he, look at how he introduces himself. I think this is uh, so wild that he would say, this, this is who I am. I, I, I'm a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would call Jesus his Lord. Now, I bring this up all the time when we talk about James, but I think it's a very intriguing question. That is, what would your brother have to do to convince you that, Jesus, that he is the Son of God and your Lord? Like, what? <laughs> we laugh because the answer is uh, not going to happen, right? Like, it's, there's nothing that my brother could do to ever convince me that he's Lord, that he's like, I'm going to worship him. And yet, Here's James, and this is how he addresses his half-brother. Now, for, you, for those who don't know, like, 
especially if you're exploring faith in Christ and you're not so sure who Jesus is yet, like I just encourage you to, to consider the life of James because there's something here that's just so intriguing and like compelling to cause us to think, man, maybe Jesus, maybe there's something more to him than just, just some like godly teacher or some good teacher. Like, because here's the deal with James. When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Jesus had a, a few brother, half-brothers and sisters, James being one of them, and that none of them <laughs> believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Like every time that they're mentioned in the gospels, you see that they're either mocking Jesus or embarrassed by Jesus. And like, again, it makes sense, right? Because if your brother is claiming to be the son of God, you're not like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll believe that. Like, that's weird, right? And so they, like, withdrew from him. They weren't sure about him. They mocked him. And nothing would convince them that he was the son of God. Like, not Jesus' teachings, not Jesus' miracles, and specifically for James, like, not, of course, not Jesus' crucifixion, because that, in James's mind, actually confirmed, yeah, I knew it all along. Jesus, you're a heretic. Like, Jesus, you're blasphemous. You would, what you say about who you are is not true. Now everyone knows, and they've killed you for it. And yet, just a few days after Jesus had died, just a couple months after people said that they saw Jesus alive, James is associating with Jesus' followers. And soon, he's actually leading Jesus' followers to worship his brother. Like, that's, there's historic evidence of that. That's not in, just in the Bible. Like, that's, that's like historical record. And you think, well, what in the world? What took place to cause James to go from disassociating himself from his brother to worshiping his brother and leading others to worship his brother? So, guys, there's only one answer. James saw his brother die. And then he saw him come back to life. He saw Jesus hang on a cross and die. And a few days later, he saw his resurrected brother and he said you're not just my brother you're my lord you're my god that's pretty intriguing this may add let me just add a cherry on top on on james's story um not only did he begin to worship his brother and then lead others to worship his brother james actually became the leader of the church the pastor of the church in jerusalem and eventually he was killed for worshiping and leading others to worship his brother. Like he died for his faith in Jesus. Like how wild is that? Who would do that? What would cause someone to do that? I'll tell you, nothing short of seeing your brother die and, and come back to life than say, okay, you know what? You really are who you said you are all along. You're the son of God. You're my Lord. This is, this is James. This, again, excited about studying this because this is, this is who wrote this. This is his experience. This is how he introduces himself. But let me move on. So he says, okay, this is who I am, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he addresses who he's, uh, you know, the, his original audience. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And uh, just a couple of things to point out here. The first thing is to see that James is not writing to a specific, uh, specific church. 
He's writing to a specific people that are scattered all over the place, to, to, uh, namely to, to Jewish Christians, Jewish Jesus followers who are scattered all over the nations. And the reason that they're scattered all over the nations and the reason that James would have a heart to write to them is because, in large part, many of these Jewish Christians that are all over the place, they were once in Jerusalem. Not all of them, but lots of them were in Jerusalem. And they heard about Jesus and they saw, some of them saw that Jesus is resurrected. And many of them heard from people who did see the resurrected Jesus. And God, you read in the book of Acts, like thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem have come to faith to believe that Jesus is their Lord, that he is God the Son. And so all of this incredible movement was happening in Jerusalem at the beginning of right after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the thousands of people have come to faith and then persecution breaks out on the church in Jerusalem, and people start you know, threatening and even killing Christians in Jerusalem, and what happens is that the believers there scatter, and they move out, and they go to different nations, and this is who James is addressing because he was the pastor of this church, and a lot of them have moved on. They've had to get out of town because of persecution which tells you that the people that he was writing to were going through severe trials. Like they were not in a good place. Like they were, he's, in a lot of ways, he's writing to refugees. He's writing to people who, as a result of persecution, religious persecution, have had to move away from their home and their support structure, or their, leave their businesses behind and their property behind, and try to start somewhere brand new. And I'm telling you, it was so hard. And the people that they moved to, they despised Christians as well. And so it's not like they were coming to a place where their people were just arms wide open to them. Like these people that he's writing to are having a really hard time. Which means, friends, if you're having a really hard time, like if you're going through a trial, if life is really hard for you, then I would really encourage you to lean into this study this fall. Because the people that James is writing to are people that are just like you. And what he says to them is going to be so helpful for you as well. In fact, what he says, and, and the whole purpose of this letter, is, is really clear right from the beginning because he addresses right from the start those going through trials. And what he says to them right, right, right away sounds crazy. Well, we're we're going to see that. But he's telling them, hey, here, friends, from a pastor's heart, I miss you. I love you. I hope you're doing well. I want to help you keep following Jesus so you're scattered all over the place. And I want to help you figure out how to follow Jesus, live wisely in the midst of trials. And so right after the greeting, he writes these words, verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. To which we want to say, wait, what? <laughs> right? Like, I thought you said this was a book on wisdom, right? But uh, that is pretty much the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, consider it pure joy when I face trials? Like, is he saying that I should be a masochist? Like, oh, I like trials. Like, bring on the pain. I like it. Come on, that's good. it makes me happy. Like, is this what he's telling us our attitude should be? I mean, this sounds stupid, right? And it does. <laughs> it does sound stupid. But you need to understand what he means when he says, consider. Uh-oh, lost our feed. Interesting. And it's back. 
even better. Trials. I'm talking on trials, and this is how it's going to go. It's pure joy. I'm just smiling. Okay, so he says, consider, right? This word right here is a key word. This word, uh, when he says consider, what he means is that, it, like, when you face a trial, he knows that the visceral, the natural reaction, emotion that comes when you face a trial is, is not joy. Of course not. It's sorrow. And it should be. But he's saying, look, when I say consider, I want you to, he's basically, I want you to, I want you to try to look at it from a different perspective. I want you to look at your trial and try to see it from a, in a new way. And if you do this, then you're going to find joy. And you're thinking, well, okay, James, what's this new way you want me to look at this trial? He says, well, I, I, want, you to, I want you to consider when you're going through a trial, what can happen in you as a result of the trial? What, can, what God can do in you as a result of the trial? See, because if you do that, then you can respond to the trial with joy. So then he moves on. Next verse, he's going to give us some, some more explanation of why we can respond to trials with joy. And he says this, because you know the testing of your faith. Now, I put it all caps there because it's a key word. Testing of your faith, and oh, you know, think faith or belief, trust, all kind of mean the same thing. This is a very, very important concept in all of Scripture, but here specifically in James, because here's what this means. And I love that James includes this. It just helps us understand that James, he's not writing like from his ivory tower about those who are going through trials and having never been through it. No, James knew what it was to go through trials. And this statement tells us that, it informs us that, because here's what James knows, and here's what we all know, that when you go through a trial, it tests your faith. That when you go through a trial, it, you could say, it, it puts your faith on trial. When you go through a trial, it puts God on trial, doesn't it? That in your mind, you're going through something, and, and, you're, and you're thinking, really, God, you're going to let this happen to me? Really? Like, this, like, is this the kind of God you are? Or I guess you don't care about me? Or have you abandoned me? Or do you, are you even there? When you go through a trial, it puts your test, I mean, it puts your faith on trial. I love that James says this here because that tells me, like, he knows. He knows what happens whenever we go through a trial. But he also, uh, he's, um, well, let me, before I move on. Let me give you a definition of faith, because I know faith can be kind of a squishy term, right? And so last month, or back in August, I actually did a whole message talking about faith. But for those of you who weren't here, just as a reminder, faith, let me just give you a real simple definition. Biblical faith is confidence that what God says is true. Biblical faith is confidence that what God says is true. Biblical faith is taking God at his word. But specifically, it's confidence that God is who he says he is, and that he has done and will do all that he has said. But trials test our faith in God. And James knows this. And so he continues, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That when your, te- when your faith is tested through these trials, it's going to produce something. And he says, here's what it can produce. It can produce perseverance. And specifically here, he's talking about persevering faith. That's what he's talking about. It's going to persevere. 
The testing of your faith can produce perseverance, can produce persevering faith. For when you face a trial, when life gets hard, the doctor calls, and it's not good news. You have a job when you're driving into work, and at 10 a.m., you're leaving work unemployed. The transmission fails, and you don't have the, the money to fix it. The girl that you want to marry breaks up with you. Or things that are far worse than all of those. And you think, all right, I can't keep believing this stuff. God loves me, whatever. Look at my circumstance. There's no way he loves me. God cares about me? No. He doesn't care about me. God's real? No. Look at this. There's no way God's real. See, when that happens, you have a, a decision point. And the decision point, trials bring this decision point. The decision point is this. Am I going to keep believing what I believe or am I going to eject? Am I going to punt? Am I going to walk away? Am I going to quit praying? Am I going to quit worshiping with a church family? Am I going to quit reading the Bible? Am I going to quit talking to God? Am I going to quit believing altogether? Am I out or am I going to keep believing? Am I going to choose to not see God through the lens of my circumstances, but I'm going to choose to see my circumstances through the lens of God's character? You have a decision point to decide. What am I going to do? Because the trial is going to test it. It's going to put it to a test, and you're going to have to decide. Do I, will I keep believing? Will I not? But if you choose to keep believing, if you choose to persevere in your faith, James is saying, and something really good can happen. Something really significant can take place. Something good, something that even, as wild as it sounds, that can bring you joy. Here's what he says, next verse, that can take place if you keep persevering. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that, so that, this purpose statement, this result statement, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, did you, did you catch that? According to that, how do you become a mature Christian? According to James, what he says here, this nugget of wisdom, how do you become a mature Christian? you got to allow perseverance or persevering faith to finish its work. So what James is saying is, I want you to consider the fact that suffering or going through trials, if you persevere in your faith in God, they will turn you into a mature person, someone who is complete, not lacking anything. And that last phrase, not lacking anything, it literally, it literally means to be equipped for every job. To which we all want to say, okay, James, Thanks, that's, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what else do you have, right? Like, okay, like if I, I'm in, being mature, being complete, not lacking anything, you know, set up for every job, that sounds great. I'll take some of that, but uh, let me go with option B to get there, right? Because this whole trial thing, not so much, right? I mean, can't we just like go to church, right? Can I can show up on a Sunday and worship you? Can I read the Bible? Can I pray? Can I try to obey you? If I just obey you, can I get to maturity and like, you know, just get around, detour around the whole trials, the whole thing, that whole thing? But here's the deal. No. And James is saying no. That the way to maturity isn't just through obedience. And here's why. 
because we will not obey a God we do not trust. If we do not trust him, we will not do what he says. And trials test our faith and can produce perseverance of faith, deepening our trust in God. And when we trust God more, we will obey. But obedience follows trust every single time. That's why the act of maturity, real spiritual maturity in Scripture is measured by persevering faith, not by perfect behavior. It's because perfect behavior or good behavior follows trust. It follows persevering faith. So he says, here's how you're going to be mature. Here's how you can be made complete. You've got to persevere in your faith in the midst of trials. But when you do, here's the thing to find joy in. God can, he will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, some of y'all might think this is an exaggeration, but those who are older, I know you'll agree with me, uh, maybe even give me an amen here, but here's the truth. Um, Trials and suffering, it can make you a better person. The trials and suffering truly can make you a, a better husband and a better wife and a better mom and a better dad, and a better friend, and a better employee, and a better employer. It's going to make you a better man, and it can make you a better woman. When you go through trials, it can make you kinder. It can make you gentler. It can make you wiser. It can make you more humble. It can make you more self-aware. It can make you uh, more empathetic. See, this is things, these are the things that God can accomplish through trial. Now, of course, trials can make you harder. They can make you jaded. They can make you a critic. They can make you a cynic. They can make you withdraw. They can make your heart grow cold. And the difference between these two reactions of trials, one of the biggest differences, what James is saying here, is that in the trial, you don't lose faith that God is who he says he is. And namely, the faith of this promise that God can do a work in the trial to make you mature and complete. That he can actually accomplish something good through it to make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. As you hold on to that, you persevere in your faith, then God uses that to accomplish good in your life, so much good that it can actually bring you joy. I mean, think about, the, think about people you know are not some of the most kindest, godliest, gentle, gentlest, is that a word? Um, people that you know, also the people who've really gone through some really hard stuff, who've really been through the ringer, who've really had to walk through trials. Like I think about this personally with... Um, my father-in-law, like my father-in-law, Ted Rice, is an awesome guy. He's one of the most godly guys that I know. 
He, uh, he loves God. He, he's, uh, yeah, he knows God's word. He's an incredible counselor. He is elder of his church. He's just a godly man. Really, really love that guy. But I'll tell you what I am most inspired by. And the thing that I, am, uh, I find just so incredibly uh, compelling about him is not his knowledge or his obedience, but it's his perseverance in the faith. See, because Ted and his wife Rita uh, have gone through some really hard things and, and really had to camp out in the midst of trials for a long time. Uh, Ted is um, the father, Ted and Rita, father of... Uh, of uh, father and mother of Krista, my wife, who's awesome, and of uh, her brother, Justin, who is also awesome. But Justin, who's just a couple years younger than Krista, has uh, uh, some severe mental and social handicaps. And that when he was born, they could tell that I mean, something was a little bit you know, off, but when he hit puberty, it was as if, Ted would say, it's as if like, he changed overnight. And, and, and Justin really regressed. And like his vocabulary shrank down from, you know, being able to carry a conversation in just a few words. And uh, he quit sleeping at night. And uh, he's a big, big old guy. And at times he would get physically aggressive. And like their life just changed dramatically. And they didn't have, Ted didn't have any real hope that things were going to get better. Like this was just, this was their trial and it was going to be, they were going to be there for a long time. And uh, Ted, as a result, had to quit his job. He was a pastor at a church. And he knew that uh, because pastors don't work regular hours, he knew, I can't, I can't really be home and be present in my family and care for my son and, and the rest of my family as well as I need to. So he quit his job that he loved. And he had to start a whole new career. So it's completely start over. And, and what would have been uh, the thing that would like, could have, like if I was in issues, I just think, like I would have been so tempted to hit the eject button on my faith. Like, God, here I am trying to serve you. I'm a pastor. I'm trying to help people love you and know you. And yet this is what's happening to me. And it's happened to my family. It's happened to my son. I'm out of here. Instead, Ted persevered. In his faith. Not that his faith wasn't tested. Trials test your faith. But he persevered. And he held on. And he knew, God, you're good. God, you love me. You care for me. You're in this with me. And he held on to that. And as a result, God has made him into a mature Christian. I mean, when I'm around Ted, I think, man, I want to be just like you. I don't want to become like you the way that you became like you. But I want to be just like you. Why? Because I'm a, when I'm around Ted, I think this is what mature, spiritual maturity looks like. This is what it means to be complete. This is what it means to lack any, not lack anything. When I talk to Ted about this, he tells me, man, yeah, Jake, like I, would, I would not wish on any family, on any person, a, a, a mentally disabled, mentally handicapped child. And yet... And I'm so thankful I get to be Justin's dad. And one of the reasons that I'm thankful that I'm Justin's dad is because God has used Justin to deepen my faith in him, to deepen my dependence on him, to deepen my relationship with God. 
And as a result, I trust God more. And because of that, I am a better husband than I would be without Justin. I'm a better father than I would be without Justin. I am a better employer. I'm a better friend. I'm a better counselor than I would be without Justin. In other words, Ted would say, through this trial, God's made me complete. He's made me mature. Friends, um, that's why James says, come on. In the midst of the trial, don't bail. Don't give up, but instead, let perseverance finish its work. Let it finish its work. Now, uh, James is a realist, okay? And so he knows that that is going to be incredibly difficult. So, that the, so the very next thing he says here is extremely practical. Because he knows that seeing our trials from this perspective is going to take something that we don't often have, especially in the midst of the trial. And so he says, he just kind of puts his finger on what we're going to need in order to persevere in our faith. In verse 5, here's how he says it. He tells us what to do in the midst of the trial. He says, if any of you, which is really going to be all of us at some point, if any of you who are facing a trial... If any of you who lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, this is, this is really helpful. See, because James is saying, I know what it's like to face trials and to suffer. I, I get that. And so when you find yourself in incredibly difficult circumstances and you need, to, you need to know you can ask God for wisdom. And that's, that's good news, isn't it? Because, I mean, what questions, what do we say whenever we're blindsided by a trial? I mean, how do we usually respond? What's one of the things we say? We say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. James says, hey, yeah, I understand. That's what I often say. Here's what you can say. Um, God, I, I don't know what to do. Here's what you can pray. God, I need your wisdom. I need wisdom here. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. And, and uh, in this, there's this promise that God will give wisdom to you generously without finding fault. And this phrase, without finding fault, it, it's probably better translated without reproach, meaning uh, God's not going to respond to your, your request for wisdom. He's not going to respond by saying, uh, sorry, not going to happen. You got yourself into this mess. You're going to have to figure out how to get yourself out. And there's no reproach. He's going to say, yeah, yeah, I'm your father. I love you. You want wisdom? I'm going to give you wisdom. Now, I used to think that this meant if you lack wisdom in knowing how to navigate your trials in order to like get out from underneath them, then ask God for wisdom and he's going to give you wisdom how to escape your trials or how to get out of, your tri- out of the trials or get, change your circumstances. But now I realize that's not the main promise here. And sometimes God can do that for sure. But the main promise in the context of this, the, the, the wisdom that God can give you is the wisdom you will need in order to persevere in your trials and even have joy in the midst of your trial. For it's wisdom that's going to help you see the good work God is wanting to do in you through the trial. See, personally for me, what this looks like is this. It's, it's praying... God, God, will you give me the wisdom to see what you want to do in me through this? 
God, will you give me the wisdom to value the work that you want to do in me more than my value of being comfortable and you changing my circumstances. Which does not mean, friends, that I, I don't pray for God to change my circumstances. I do, often. And I want to be real clear here. Trials in and of themselves are not good. Trials are not good. I mean, I think about Jesus outside of the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, and he is mad. He is weeping as he is confronted with the death and the evil and the brokenness of this world, all personalized in the person of his friend Lazarus. And Jesus is upset, and he's mad about what's happened, and yet he's not upset and mad with himself, though he's the sovereign king of the universe. Now, that's something to chew on. Why? How can that two things? The reason why he could be mad about this and not mad at himself is because this, Lazarus' death, trials, suffering, evil, pain, brokenness, is never a part of God's original plan. That's not how God created the world. That these things are not good. And yet, here's where joy can be found. God can work all things out together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 says. That God has the power, that God has the wisdom, that God is the sovereign king who has the ability to take the bad, the horrible, the suffering and the pain and the trial and say, you know what, that's bad. That was not a part of my plan, but I'm so good, I can make good come through it. I can bring good out of it. I can use this bad thing to accomplish something really good in your life. Just trust me. Persevere in your faith. Hold on to me. If you do, then perseverance will finish its work. I will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. So friends, when I am stuck in this problem with this trial, this suffering, I say, God, I don't know what to do. He says, Come, bring that to me. Ask me for wisdom. I want to help you. I want to help give you wisdom that's going to help you persevere. I want to give you wisdom. I want to give you wisdom. I want you to be able to see what I'm trying to do in your life. I say, okay, God, I need that. And will you, not, will you just help me see what you're up to in this? It will help me persevere. Friends, if you do that, it's going to really help you face trials. You feel that? That's going to really help you face trials. He's not done yet. He's, he's going to add a, a but to this. He's going to add uh, a uh, little, if you will, restriction to this thing. Here's what he says, verse 6. But when you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. When you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. James says, hey, so like... When you ask God for wisdom, when you ask God to help you and to help you see what he wants to do in you through the trial, you need to believe. You need to believe. And here's what you got to believe. You got to believe that God is up to something good. You got to believe that God keeps his promises. You got to take God at his word, that he's not abandoning you, that he still loves you, and that he can bring good out from this. You got to 
believe, you need to believe and not doubt. And he tells us why. He says, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything. And specifically in this context, it's, it's any wisdom. You should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. To which, if you're like me, you want to say, hey, that, that's unfair. Like, I don't like that. That doesn't seem fair. Because we all doubt at times, don't we? Like, friends, I doubt at times. Like, we all doubt at times. I mean, we just got done saying, James just got done saying that trials test your faith. The trials put God on trial. It causes you to question. It causes you to doubt. So it's like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. But I love this. Because the reason that James says this is because it tells, he understands that. I mean, James just says, like, yeah, I, I know, I know that, that trials will test your faith, that they, that they surface doubts. That's why I'm bringing this up here. That's why I'm mentioning doubt here. See, because you need to know, doubting God's promises, friends, is not going to help you. And it's not going to help me. I mean, it's natural for our minds to go there. But persevere persevere. Persevere in your faith. For when you doubt, you begin to question the promises of God, that he's loving and powerful and faithful God who's up to something good in your life. And doubting that is just going to make you like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, blown and tossed by the circumstances of life. And that's going to make you unstable in all that you do. Because that's not a healthy or a helpful place to be. So instead, James calls us here to have faith. To believe that God is who he says he is. That he has done and will do all that he has said. And that he is up to something good in your life in the midst of the trial. For when you believe that, God will respond to your faith by giving you his wisdom to help you see more clearly the good work he is up to in the midst of the trial. So, that's a lot, right? Well, that's a lot to unpack. That's, it's, it's heavy, you know. And it is. It's heavy, but I tell you, it's helpful. This is wisdom. This is wisdom to help you know how to navigate trials. This is wisdom. This is a perspective that says, okay, here, look at it this way, and you can even find joy in the midst of trials. And as I really hope that you would embrace this, that you would chew on this, that you would talk about this with each other, that you'd get together with your MC or your huddle, and you'd say, okay, like I, I, let's process this together. This is not how I usually view trials. And yet, maybe this is true. If this is true, then God's actually good in my trial, and he could bring it, cause it to bring about something really good in my life. Man, I would love that that's true. Let's talk about it. See, sum this all up. When, here's what James is saying. He says, okay, when you, we face trials, what should we do? If you had one word, you'd say, believe. Or you could say, persevere in your belief. Specifically, believe that God can use the trial you're facing to make you mature and complete. And when you can't see that, 
and life is just too hard, he says, with faith, ask God for wisdom, and he will help you see how. He will help you see what he's up to, which will help you persevere. And so you can find joy not in the trial, not in the trial itself. That's stupid. But in what the trial means. Here's what it means. It means your loving Father is doing something that's eternally good for you. He's working to mature you and make you complete so that you're not lacking anything. So as a way of application, I want to ask you to adopt a prayer this week. Kind of in lieu of our healthy habits and trying to help all of us spend time with God on a regular basis and develop this habit of abiding in Christ and just going to him regularly. I want to give you a prayer that might help you do that. And here's the prayer. I'll post this on Instagram. I'll post this on Facebook. You can see it. I'll do that later today if you don't want to take a picture of it here. But here's the prayer I want to ask you to, to pray this week, perhaps every day this week. It's Heavenly Father, as I face trials, help me find joy in your promise. That as my faith in you perseveres, you will use my trials to make me mature and complete, not lacking anything. God, will you, will you, will you do this? Will you help me believe this? Will you help me persevere? Will you help me persevere by, by believing your promise? That's the prayer. And guys, I know it's going to be really hard to believe that. I know if you're going through a really difficult trial right now, this is hard to hear. So let me give you one more word of encouragement. When this is hard to believe, can I just ask you, can I just encourage you to follow what Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 says. When it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith that we would all, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, and this word endured is the exact same word in James 1 as persevere. It's the same thing. It says, consider him who persevered under such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, friends, I would encourage you, when this is hard to believe, fix your eyes on Jesus because here's the thing, that Jesus just shouts to our hearts. He declares to us is that God absolutely can bring good out of suffering and trials. See, we're going to take communion here at the end of this message, and you can come up to the front here or the tables in the back. But when we take communion, we are remembering how Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us and we're also remembering that through Jesus's suffering as he persevered through the shame of the cross God brought about the greatest good the salvation of many those who would believe and the promise of the restoration of the world If God can bring about good in the midst of this trial, the trial of Jesus, and he can bring about good in the midst of your trial. And if God is still good and loving and faithful and all-powerful and kind in light of the cross, then the cross then declares that he is that for you right now in the midst of your trial. And so fix your eyes on Jesus. And so as we take communion, I ask that you would reflect on that. You'd remember that. Let what you're taking be the reminder that you need 
that God is able and he has promised as you persevere in your faith in him. You hold on to him in the midst of the trial. He can bring good through it. What kind of good? Your maturity. He can make you complete, not lacking anything. Communion table is open to everyone. Uh, as long as you put your faith in Christ, we just ask that you believe what you're taking here. If you don't believe this, you, you're just wondering about this. Perhaps you're still thinking about James and how, you know, he came to believe that Jesus was his, you know, brother and his Lord. And like, I'd, I'd encourage you to think about that and ask, ask God about that right now. Ask him for wisdom. God, are you really who you say you are? For the rest of us, let's come and take communion. May we reflect on these truths we would even find joy in our trials. We've got the Toelanders, Greg and Kristen, are going to be in the back to pray with you. If you, have, if you would like some prayer, they would love to pray for you. Uh, let me pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for James and this study. We're looking forward to that this fall. May you speak through it. Teach us wisdom, God. Teach us how to navigate life in light of your promises, in light of who you are, in light of Jesus. And God, I pray specifically for all of us who are going through trials now or who will go through trials, which is all of us. God, I pray that you would help us believe this. God, you would help us persevere in our faith. And as we persevere in our faith, trusting that you are who you say you are, God, that you would accomplish your good work in us. That you would make us mature and complete, not lacking anything. God, thanks for Jesus. Thank you for his death on our behalf. Thank you for the reminder, the incredibly strong reminder that you can bring good out of suffering. We know that because look at the good you've accomplished through Jesus' death on our behalf. God, you're so good. We want to worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.